Welcome to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, your host with Dr. Charles Goldman with me in the studio. And I want to take a second to thank some of the local businesses that make our program possible. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, located on 20th and Woodland in the Sherman Hill neighborhood. That's my grocery store. And a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Gateway also has an excellent catering service. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Hawk Restaurant in the East Village, where 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. That's Hawk Restaurant. Okay, so in the program today, we're going to be talking about some uh, Trump regulatory uh, ambitions that don't have the environment uh, in their best interest. Uh, Well, also, that's a surprise, right? But first, we're going to talk about the Iowa caucuses. And, uh, you know, so much is happening right now. It's hard to know where to start. But um, this weekend in Des Moines, Pete Buttigieg, who has been slipping in the polls, I think he just found another way to slip even further. The uh, Black Lives Matter movement uh, was at a protest at a Des Moines event, and they called him out uh, uh, for uh, his perceived uh, indiscretions as the mayor of, um, in, of, of South Bend. And um, uh, he, uh, he didn't handle it really well. He said... Uh, well, uh, in terms of indiscretions, I assume you're talking about the issues with the, yeah. the police department and... Um, right. The, black, the African-American police chief. and I, I was putting it politely, stuff. yes. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, he's gotten a lot of, a lot of feedback and uh, fallout from this. And uh, maybe nobody saw it coming in, in little old Des Moines, but there it was. And he did not handle it well. He, I mean, he, he tried to be polite, saying, okay, you need to be, let, let's have a respectful conversation. But it came off very condescending. And then his audience, his supporters in the audience, started chanting, U.S.A., USA. And all I could think of was, wow, a Donald Trump rally. <laughs> that's, that's what that reminded me of. Yeah, but with about, with about 100 more African Americans, though. Well, maybe. Because yeah. well, there's usually maybe. only one or two behind them. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and they're paid to be there. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah, so, uh, you know, I, it did not go well for, um, for Mayor Pete. Um, I, I, in the way, the way he, he handled it, it didn't come off well. And his audience, I mean, he can't control what his audience does, but. Chance of USA, USA to try to drown out the Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. chance. I, I, I see this as hurting him beyond the African-American base, which, of course, is, is pretty you know, much not with him anyhow. Well, it continues to be a national story because mm-hmm. uh, the Sunday shows were talking about um, this issue again. And, and his dodge has been that he doesn't really know specifically what is on these tapes of the white officers because they were illegally obtained, because it was an illegal wiretap, essentially. Mm-hmm. Although he does know in, in sort of a general sense what was on, on the, the wiretap. And it would certainly indicate that uh, there were differential uh, promotion policies for the various officers, particularly African-American officers, within that department. Do you think that's the primary or maybe or even the only reason why the black community has uh, trouble with Mayor Pete? Uh, or do you think it has something to do with his sexuality? That's an interesting question. Um, although uh, it, it would be less about their, you know, being African-Americans than are they African-American Southern Baptists or fundamentalist well, religions. E- even here in yeah. Iowa, when we, when we were pushing hard to raise public awareness before the Supreme Court ruling on marriage equality, which of course uh, we're both very strongly in support of, mm. uh, one of the hardest communities to work with was uh, the black, the leadership in the black community here. 
Uh, there were certainly a handful that were uh, fully supportive of equality for the GLBT community, but uh, there were a lot that were very much against it. Well, but you also have the issue, which is not unique to the African-American male population, see it also among Latino men, uh, in terms of you know machismo and, and traditional masculine definition, which would make them uncomfortable. Yeah, uh, and, with it. And beyond that, I, I think I think uh, I think Mayor Pete is is um, is in trouble. I, do, I don't mm-hmm. I don't I don't see. I think he has peaked, which kind of brings me to my second uh, second element of conversation here is the well, polls. Well, before you leave that, I would okay. ask the question: Do you think that there is among the the main, you know, the top tier of Democrat candidates who really does? outside of Biden, have fairly substantial African-American support? Uh, in Iowa, I would say it's, I, I can't speak for South Carolina, which uh, seems to be very heavily in Biden's, uh, Biden's court. Uh, right. But in, in, in Iowa, I, I certainly, uh, you see a fair representation of, uh, of uh, minority community members at a lot of the other candidate events. So I, I think it's primarily Mayor Pete that's struggling with, with that demographic. Yeah. And Elizabeth Warren historically has also. Yeah, I think I think she's not faring as well as Bernie and mm. uh, Bernie Sanders and some of the other uh, other uh, Democratic candidates who have had a better track record of embracing uh, diversity. But I, I this which again which brings me to the next issue, well, the polls. Yeah, may I? Sure, <laughs> sure. No, I mean I I, I I just think the issue of African American sports obviously an important one about the electability True. issue. Yeah, yeah. So uh, with um. With the polls. And again, Biden was leading for the first six months in Iowa. Mm-hmm. And then Warren took over. And then Buttigieg. And Buttigieg has been leading the polls as recently as November. Mm-hmm. And now, and then he started slipping. And now Sanders seems to be in the, uh, in the driver's seat in the last three or four polls. And uh, at this point, you know, when you're talking about momentum, three weeks out from the caucuses... You know that that's I think things are looking pretty good for Sanders in terms of uh, coming out on top, unless something dramatic happens between now and February third, which again could happen. But I mean, you know, just for the the viewers, listeners, what does that mean? Because if Sanders is at twenty percent in Iowa, um, the way the caucuses are going to work is that it's going to be the, sort of the second countings and the third countings as as people rearrange themselves around the room mm-hmm. that are really going to be the end result so who's going to lose which groups are going to be considered under the number therefore having to redistribute right um, and, and they you're right they may some of those that need to realign might go with other candidates it's hard to say right and, I, and you would think it was it's going to be a lot of the centrist supporting people who are going to have to realign because they're the ones who are running the furthest behind here in Iowa. Yeah. You know, I mean, Cory Booker's out as of today, but Amy Klobuchar is still at single-digit percentage. Yeah. She, she is the one candidate who might gain from some additional momentum. If, um, if people have to move from Buttigieg or... Yeah, Biden. I mean, yeah. She, she is, uh, she's probably the most conservative of all the Democrats running in, ter- in terms of, um, certainly in terms of the environment. Uh, and that's been a big problem because... Uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline is a huge issue here in Iowa, and of all the candidates that haven't been progressive on the on the proposal to expand the the amount of oil flowing through Dapple, she's been the worst. You know, at least at least Bloomberg told us where he stood. Mm-hmm. His response was, "They're underground. What's the problem?" Uh, yeah, <laughs> you can almost hear him saying that, right? So, but you know, with Biden, it, Biden is, is just a mixed up response. He says he's against pipelines. He says I've always been against them. 
Mm -hmm. That's just not true. Uh, and then he also supports, you know, rebuilding some of the existing ones that are leaking. And then you've got um, Buttigieg, who just said, I'm against doubling the oil. And that's it. He wouldn't give any more detail. No, nothing at all. No, no elaboration at all. But Klobuchar is emphatically for expanding pipelines. She's been supportive of the Line 3 in Minnesota. She has basically said that we're going to need pipelines like Dapple for many years to come. And here's what I don't understand. I don't understand why that's not resonating with more Iowa voters, because most Democrats have been against this pipeline. Most Democrats are, are adamantly against expanding it. And yet, mm -hmm. and maybe it's partly or largely because the mainstream media refused to pick up on that aspect of the story, which, again, boggles my mind, because it's a big deal here in Iowa and nationally. Well, what, where is the polling that says Dapple is a big deal here in Iowa? Well, there's no recent polling, but certainly mm -hmm. when you go back to uh, when the pipeline was first being proposed, uh, uh, there were 74% of Iowans were against using eminent domain to build a thing. That's yeah. across the political spectrum. And about 50, just over 50% were against the pipeline, period. And I haven't seen any, I can't remember specific polls for Democratic vote. I don't know if they broke them out, Democratic, Republican. But anecdotally, if you talk to Democrats, they're emphatically against expanding. They were, they were against building it in the first place, and they're certainly against expanding it. So I don't get why more people aren't paying more attention to that. I mean, you have some fairly prominent uh, climate voices in Iowa that are getting behind Klobuchar's campaign. Mm. Either they just don't know, or for some reason they're willing to look beyond the fact that she is in favor of expanding the fossil fuel infrastructure. I, you know, I, I actually think the best headline about what's going on here in Iowa uh, was a day or two ago, which said, uh, Iowa Democrats afraid of making a mistake. <laughs> and I, I think the thing that trumps everything is Trump, which is really Iowa Democrats, except for, except for Bernie, because, you know, the people behind Bernie have been energetically behind Bernie since the last election. And so they have reasons, you know, for why they continue to support Bernie. But I think uh, for a lot of other Democrats, it's about the same thing we've been hearing for months, the electability, i.e. who can beat yeah. Trump. And, and that's, a, that's, a, that's such a hard concept to really come up with any reasonable response to. It's right. A, I mean, it, well, Kerry was supposed to be electable, too. Yeah, look how well that and went. Yeah, and that, well, See, I, I, to me, there's enough. He may actually have won. But well, yeah, but winning the popular vote matters not. Well, no, he may have actually won Ohio until they sent the votes to Kentucky well, to yeah. be uh, laundered. But um, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I do think that that is what's driving most of the Democratic I votes agree. here in Iowa. I agree. And I, and I think it's a really, uh, to me, the best measurement of electability is, is that candidate an outsider or at least perceived to be an outsider? Mm. Trump, who is a consummate insider is perceived to be an outsider, partly because he's crazy. Yeah. You know, but Hillary Clinton, there, there was no way to move beyond the fact that this is, a, you know, this is a candidate, Hillary Clinton, who is entrenched within the status quo. Mm -hmm. And so was John Kerry. Well, so was Al Gore. Obama, not so much. I mean, I think that's mm -hmm. why it, it's the, it's the, it's the anti-establishment, or the candidate perceived to be outside the establishment that wins. And I don't know why more Democrats can't figure that out. And to me, that would mean... Democrats want to be really careful about candidates that are going to be pegged that way. And again, mm -hmm. nobody, nobody more than Joe Biden. Well, that, it's that interesting you say that because I was watching Fox News this morning. It was on the doctor's lounge. Um, <laughs> really? They did change it to CNN. Okay, afterwards. good. <laughs> but um, it, they were having, you know, they were pontificating on Fox News about how that there is a former Obama 
campaign manager who's saying that Bernie Sanders would be the worst choice. It would be handing the election to uh, President Trump, which means, of course, Bernie Sanders should be our choice. Because right, yeah. <laughs> Fox News and the Republicans have played the Democrats so perfectly sure, sure. for years, yeah. basically telling them right. who would be the best candidate yeah. to run. And it's always going to be the milquetoast yeah. centrist and, and by, that they always, you know, that the that the advisor class always tells them they yeah, should run. Yeah, and a while back, Biden was uh, touting Trump's comment that he fears Biden as, a, as, as an opponent. Why would Trump say that? Because it's not true. He wants Biden well, as an opponent. Well, of course it's not true Trump said it. Yeah, yeah right. But <laughs> yeah. Trump, wants, Trump wants Biden as an opponent. Right. And so, you know, that, a thinking person would say, okay, if Trump is saying that, it's probably not true. Yeah. Uh, and, but, and, but but probably in this case not not not, not he, Trump's not being clumsy mm-hmm. or um or you know he's not he's not he's not uh, making something up he's saying something he knows that's not true in order to get people to to make that mistake again. Well, like, as I said, mistake. as I said, this is this is the way the Republicans have played the Democrats for oh. years, uh, telling them who they would actually not want to run against. Yeah, is the person that the Democrats shouldn't run. So here's what surprises me. You know, Jay Inslee was. Uh, the climate champion, mm-hmm. and he wasn't going anywhere in Iowa. Mm-hmm. And we have Tom Steyer, and actually Tom Steyer is doing better than uh, than Jay Inslee did in Iowa. Right. Tom Steyer is doing great in South Carolina, in Nevada. Uh, I think he's in second place in South Carolina, in fact, mm-hmm. and I believe tied for third in, in Nevada, uh, but still not polling very high here in Iowa, despite the fact that Iowa Democrats really believe strongly that climate is one of the top concerns. Again, I, I don't necessarily see this as an issues election. I, I see this as a referendum on President Trump. And um, that's what the Democrats are casting around for. So it, 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 with electability, except then, for why? Except for the younger generation, which is getting tired of the boomers running the show, who, you know, that's where a lot of Bernie support is. Mm-hmm. is among people who, it's ironic, once again, this is a 77-year-old 78? man. Yeah, 78-year-old man with a stent. You know, hearts then maybe a couple, um, and they see him as a, a champion of what they hope for the well, future because he's been consistent. He has been. Yeah, yeah that, that's the one thing Sanders has going for him more than anybody. He's been consistent for the longest period. Right, of time. and of course he gave Fox an opportunity to, to once again mention, oh, he's a socialist. Yeah, we had but, to hear that. Yeah, but, I, but again, healthcare and climate are the two top issues that Iowans care about when when mm-hmm. polled, and Steyer is really really good on climate. He's he's got a better a stronger stand on that than anyone, mm-hmm. both in terms of his position. Uh, his statement that it's going to be his, his top priority, and his track record. Um, so given that, and given the fact that he is, by conventional measurements, a, you know, a, he, he's, he's electable. He has that profile that the, the conventional Democrats regard as electable. And by my standard, he's also an outsider. So I would think that between his, his, uh, his standing on climate and his um, strong position as, uh, as, as, electable, as electable, he would be faring better. But, you know, maybe, again, maybe climate is not, uh, maybe people care about it, but when, it, when push comes to shove, they're more inclined to support a candidate that talks about education or health care or immigration reform or something else that they can get their hands around. Well, and, and there's also a huge amount of identity politics here, in the, not, not in the traditional sense of, of racial identity politics, but people do tend to vote with whom they feel most comfortable. And um, ideology is very malleable. So, you know, in, in terms of, 
of what's important. Yes, they may poll and say it's important, but we've said this before. There are 78% of the country says climate change is not a hoax and it's important. However, they're not willing to pay much to mitigate the uh, effects of climate change. You know, they're not willing to pay extra for gasoline to reduce its use. You know, it's just, it's just, it's easy to say, yeah, I believe in climate change. But when it comes to what are you going to do about it, I, I, that's why I think, it, it, that's why you have this kind of situation where you have strong environmental candidates who nevertheless are having trouble getting traction versus the people who are just putting platitudes out there yeah. about climate change. And maybe that will change as the uh, evident impacts of climate grow more and more uh, severe. Yeah, but we don't live in Bangladesh or the Marshall Atoll, you know, mm-hmm. and so until we see it here. <laughs> um, California on fire, Florida sure. flooding. Well, I mean, Australia is on fire, but yeah. Australia is on fire. And they have a fundamentalist Christian prime minister who leads a country that exports the most coal in the world. That might change. I don't know when the next election is in well, Australia, but, it, but I wouldn't is, be surprised to see it. This is a fairly recent it. election. And, and in the opponent in the last election was a very strong environmental candidate. Mm-hmm. And they got their clock cleaned. Yeah. So, hey, one more thing before sure. we move on to another conversation. Uh, you know, again, I, I've, I've contended that the Democratic Party and its allies in the corporate media uh, cannot stand progressives. Uh, you know, the and I know some like to use the words liberal and progressive interchangeably. I don't see that. I think liberal is a much more, you know, traditional description of 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 a, of a philosophy that that uses money and government to address problems. Progressive is much more grassroots, bottom up, uh, more of a, an economic populism, if you will. Uh, I don't see them as interchangeable, um, but I'm, and I, and I think I think the Democratic Party likes it's it's the party of neoliberals. It doesn't like progressives, mm-hmm. and so you know, it, it didn't take Bernie Sanders very seriously, and now they're probably regretting it because he's doing so well. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has also done quite well despite her standing as a, a pretty bold progressive, but um, it looks to me like the party, and it, again, its allies in the corporate media decided early on that they were going to make sure they were going to tank Marianne Williamson and Tulsi Gabbard before they grew too powerful. And it looks to me they were very successful at that. And that's unfortunate because both of those candidates, I think, have very strong conversations to contribute to the message. And, and I, you know, I, I, I just, um, I don't know why more people, more self-described progressives and even more liberals don't see that and don't understand that the party really doesn't like liberals. It doesn't like progressives. And again, even even look at it at the at the state level. How many how many times big uh, you know big funders within the Democratic Party have gone with Republican candidates? Uh, one of the biggest funders went with Governor Branstad, the Republican. Mm-hmm. Another one went with the Republican Secretary of Ag against a very progressive uh, Democratic candidate, Francis Dickey. And you know and and there's there's no pushback. That's okay to do that. Well, because both the Republican and Democratic parties have a, a stake in maintaining the, the two-party hegemony in this country. In fact, you know, we'll talk in the last segment yeah. about the very fact that the balkanization of the United States into two, two distinct parties with really yeah. no factions anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do. Ha- wanna... Have really destroyed American democracy. So, to, just to wrap up this conversation, do you see a path forward? I mean, I know Marion Williamson has dropped out, Tulsi Gabbard's still in the race. Mm-hmm. And regardless of whether Gabbard stays in or out, do you see a pathway forward for her and for Williamson in terms of, in terms of continuing to help direct the 
flow of the conversation within the Democratic Party. You mean from RTTV? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, there's always that option. <laughs> uh, I, 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 don't, I don't really think they're going to have much, in the, much influence over the conversation. I do think... I, 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 do I disagree, think, actually. I think they will, because I think more and more people are going to start seeing through the lie that the Democratic Party has put out there. I that, would argue that Steyer and Bloomberg are going to have a much greater effect on the conversation. In fact, a much greater effect on who the nominee is going to be. Because of their influence with money. Absolutely. And, and Bloomberg said he'll spend a billion dollars to beat Donald Trump. Yeah. And no you matter think who the candidate is. You think that's is. going to be enough to get him a position... Uh, he, a wants position. To be, he wants to be ambassador to the European Union. He wants to... Uh, have Sondland's position. All right. <laughs> All right, hey, we got to take a quick break, folks. Uh, this is Ed Fallon with you, uh, Dr. Charles Goldman with us as well. We'll be back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q-Table.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here, Dr. Charles Goldman as well. Quick shout out to some of our local business partners. Uh, thanks to Ritual Cafe located on 13th Street in downtown Des Moines. Fair trade coffee, fair trade tea, and an all vegetarian menu. That's Ritual Cafe. Also thanks to Noche, Des Moines' premier location for jazz and cabaret. They've also got an amazing cocktail bar and they feature both national and some incredible local talent as well. That's Noche on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. All right, so welcome back to the conversation. Uh, so Trump has been eviscerating environmental regulations since day one, mm -hmm. and it's continuing. Uh, the most recent effort that caught our attention was a regulatory change that would basically um, allow the federal government to rubber stamp pipeline proposals. Yeah, it, it, he announced it, if, if you remember, um, last week it was the first press conference after uh, the attack on the, or the, the killing of the Iranian general, Soleimani. And so he had his usual, you know, he's, he gets like the village people to stand behind him. He gets a bunch of people put on hard hats and pretend that they're, you know, construction workers. <laughs> the village people, <laughs> you know? okay. So, um, yes, he announced that uh, they're going to... Uh, eliminate environmental reviews on uh, projects that don't have substantial federal involvement. And many of the pipelines do not truly have substantial federal involvement other than in terms of cross-border right. issues. So uh, they're going to try to exempt from a 50-year-old law that was passed by uh, 
President Nixon. Right, the, the last liberal president. Right. <laughs> exactly. The National Environmental Protection Act, I believe it is. Yeah, and NEPA. Uh, NEPA, yeah. right. And, and that has been the genesis of most of the issues in terms of environmental review. Um, they were also going to change the standard for environmental reviews that they would have to be done within uh, two years instead of now they oftentimes take up to six years. Uh, they have to be on just two sides of a uh, piece of paper instead of the hundreds of pages they often run because the president doesn't read beyond a couple sides on a piece of paper. Um, and uh, basically they're trying to exempt a huge number of uh, the projects such as related to mining, oil and gas, pipelines, from any sort of environmental review because this is part of the, as I said in my email to you, the 100th iteration of uh, Infrastructure Week. If you remember that when we started the Trump administration, every week it was Infrastructure Week, but something came up during Infrastructure Week. And of course, there's been no infrastructure uh, you know, uh, policy other than continuation of the highway funding and all that since Trump came into... But there's been a lot of support for expanding the fossil fuel infrastructure. Well, that's and that correct. started with authorizing the Keystone uh, pipeline and mm -hmm. reapproving the Dakota Access pipeline. Right. That was, like, the, I think, the first week or two of his administration. Uh, and I remember him saying, I haven't had one call in opposition to it. Mm -hmm. Really? Okay, so... <laughs> well, yeah, among the people that he talks to at night, right, yeah. instead of in, in his locked bedroom. He has his own bedroom, by the way, that is locked. Really? Yeah. Not, Melania doesn't... Melania's not allowed in We're there. not sure if she has the key. But <laughs> anyway, so, um, you know, and basically it, this is a way of, again, trying to get projects going, keep them minimally, uh, you know, from having any oversight. And their argument, of course, is, well, the states should be doing this. But, of course, the states don't generally have the resources to be able to do six-year-long environmental reviews. Oftentimes, the states don't have the standards in place right. to uh, affect these policies. So one, one question I have is that there has already been an incredible building out of the fossil fuel infrastructure right. all over the country. And so how much, how much more do they want to do? Is, is there that much more coming on board, potentially, that, that this even makes sense? I mean, is, I would assume that they've got plans for more and more of this to happen. Well, you know, Otherwise, it, they wouldn't it, need it. It's really an interesting question because if you keep extracting more, eventually the price is going to go down. So the benefit to extracting more uh, does diminish with time. On the other hand, if we move to a renewable energy industry worldwide, these are, these are stranded assets for these oil and gas companies. And their valuation is based on the idea that they're going to be able to extract all these right. these carbon-based assets and, and sell them. So the question always comes up is, what does science say? And, uh, well, we kind of know where the, 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 the vast majority of objective scientists stand on this, but mm -hmm. interestingly, Trump's own, the, the scientist that he himself has appointed. Yeah, this is, this is one of my favorite articles in a while. Yeah. I figured you'd enjoy this. Gosh. I mean, so this was from the Times, the New York Times, and it's entitled, Scientist Panel Staff with Trump Appointees says EPA rollbacks lack scientific rigor. And the, uh, three, the three regulations they're talking about are, number one, the rollback on the mileage requirement from Obama's uh, clean air regulations. Fuel efficiency. Fuel stuff, efficiency yeah. requirements, which are still you know, in court. Um, the um, draft that we can't use the present 
presently available science when we're drafting health regulations, like, you know, for, for whether like Roundup causes cancer or things like that, they, they were setting up a situation that protected medical data would become public, which you can't. And if, they, if, you, don't, yeah. if you don't have access to that, therefore you, that, that study can't be used is, as the scientific basis. And now, is that in part response to all the lawsuits that, that Roundup is, that, uh, that um, Monsanto, I believe, is well, losing in well, court? Well, it's Bayer. Bayer, 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 right, right, yeah, Bayer, Bayer, Bayer yeah. Monsanto. Well, it, it's, not, it's not directly a response to that. It's, it's all the manufacturers of the chemical companies. They all want out of, of that kind of mm. oversight. And then the other, of course, is the waterways of the United States and the fact that, that uh, potential waterways, such as seasonal wetlands, streams that only run in certain parts of the year, should uh, be exempted from regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, and their own, the own scientific, you know, the scientific advisory board, which they gutted, they drove out about a third of the Obama-era appointees to this advisory board to the EPA. I thought it was more than that. Well, no, they, they only drove, drove out a third of them, oh, and, right. and including the chairperson. <laughs> and they did choose people who were generally, they thought, friendly to industry. Right. And, but and, and showing they, more and, guts than the Republicans and, in the uh, House of Representatives and, 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 and the Senate. And that's interesting because those people have a track record that shows them as being friendly to industry. That's correct. It's really interesting. So, Some of them are exactly that. So what, what's happening? Are they, are they coming? Are they having a come-to-Jesus moment and realizing that, hey, maybe we need to protect our planet or else? Well, I, I think there is an element of, you know, you have a reputation within your field. And if you're nothing more than, than a whore for, a, you know, an outcome... Um, then you lose your reputation in the field. Mm-hmm. And, after, and I think when they were put in a position to look at what was being done, and may, they may not disagree with rolling back of EPA regulations, but they said none of these three rollbacks had any scientific rigor whatsoever. For example, this, this is one of the assumptions that was made about why it would be okay for the environment, it would be better for the environment, if they only had to reach a fleet mileage of 37 miles per gallon instead of 52. The argument was that Cars somehow would become cheaper to buy if they didn't have to meet the regulation, which is probably true, because it would take more engineering and library materials for them to meet the regulation. Cars would become cheaper, but there would be less there would be less people driving and less, you know, passenger miles per year driven in the United States, so therefore emissions would go down. I mean, it's a ludicrous assumption. Okay. It's the absolute opposite. That's like economics 101. If right. you make something cheaper, more people are going to buy it. You know, so yeah. uh, that was the kind of sort of scientific rigor which this group said <laughs> no. And, you know, the other problem is that, yes, it's all very nice that these arroyos only run, you know, with water in them twice or three times a year in the desert. Or, you know, during the growing season here in Iowa the farmers get to wash their nitrates and all the other pesticides into the water we drink here in Des Moines. And in Louisiana. Yeah. So mm. it, that's real nice. But then essentially all you're doing is socializing the cost to the citizens of Des Moines. Right. Who are essentially subsidizing farmers to use the land in a way that is dangerous. So, so these, these uh, I mean, I, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around why. I mean, Trump is pretty good about vetting his appointees. He wants people that are going to you know, kiss his shoes, uh, admire him endlessly, yeah. and and support the, because the these full-on corporate agenda that he wants. But these so, people, but these people are scientists, and science does mean having an ethos. It's a profession. It has an ethos that is, is, well, there, is there, discreet. There are some that have shown they don't. There are scientists right. who were fully on board with, for example, uh, 
supporting uh, the notion that, that uh, cigarette smoking was not at all harmful to your health. I understand that. So, but we don't we don't make those them heroes. We don't make movies about whistleblowers, you know, in terms of smoking. We do make <laughs> movies about whistleblowers in terms of what the cigarette companies, tobacco companies knew. You know, we don't make movies about people who are shills for them. Yeah. No, I do think. I think there's, there's a certain amount of professional integrity, which was really called into question. And because ultimately, if you're sitting there reading some of the stupidity that was trying to be passed off as science, yeah, they said, you know, this is just enough. I mean, because ultimately, if we if we truly don't live in a post-truth world in which people... Post-truth yeah, world. Yeah, I, I don't yeah, know if there's any survival in a post-truth no, world. No, probably not. You know, if, if people are going to just blow off science and, you know, read something on the internet or watch Ancient Aliens or, you know, believe that, like they do on Ancient Aliens, that the aliens intervened at all these... Times when we made progress, you know, something like out of two thousand one. We could we could help. We could use their help right now. We probably could definitely use their help. No, I mean, I do think I think they 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 were they were forced to have some professional integrity because mm-hmm. it was such an egregious affront mm-hmm. to calling it science. Yeah, you know, and well, that that says volume that that the the Trump these three regulatory proposals are so bad, so scientifically indefensible that even his own scientific appointments are saying, hey, wait a minute. So mm-hmm. what's going to happen next? I mean, my, my my assumption is that the next step will be for Trump to say, "Oh, maybe I need to, maybe I need to fire you, put somebody else on that board." I don't know. I well, mean, it doesn't matter because well, first of all, they said it was a draft, and they haven't let William Barr have a have at the draft. Uh, I'm sure when yeah, he'll redact most of it. Yeah. Um, but it, it's going to be a big problem in the courts because it, in the courts, at least if if the Trump appointees would keep to the law. To, to override the NEPA, you have to have a compelling reason to override the requirements of that law. And there isn't any. The yeah. science they're putting forward is not in any way compelling. And that report is going to say that. So in, in a fair court, they're not going to be able to, to get these regulations in place. Which brings us to another, point, another uh, important point. Do we, uh, do, we, do, we, do we still have a fair judicial system? With the way uh, President Trump has been stacking it with ultra-conservative judges, uh, corporate-friendly judges? Do we even have a court that has any credibility to address these issues reasonably? I don't know. I really don't know. Well, you're supposed to have all the answers. Charles. Well, no, I mean, I, I think we haven't seen the effect yet of the fact that he's going to have appointed about 25% of the district judges in the United States. So where, where do you think these regulations are going to come? I mean, okay, so... Win one for us that, that Trump's own scientists say, oh, bad stuff. Uh, Trump ignores that. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you said, uh, you know, Barr gets involved and and uh, somehow all that gets glossed over. So what's to stop these three regulations from it'll, being enacted? It'll end up in court just like, unfortunately, a lot of the Obama era changes did. Remember, the miles per gallon standard never got changed because that's been in court. You know, the uh, Waters of the U.S. Act has never been implemented because that's in court. I mean, this will just probably go the same route. It'll sit in court for years and years and years. You know, and the other thing I'd emphasize is that the people who are being hurt most by a lot of these stripping of regulations are the very people who oftentimes are the Republican or the Trump Republican base. They're people who live in rural communities. I mean, a perfect example of this is there was a, a great piece in the L.A. Times on what would happen if these regulations went into place for a place like New Mexico, which is a state which is, in general, very rural, a lot of, a lot of poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so they pointed out that 96% of the state waterways and wetlands in New Mexico would become unprotected under these regulations from coal mine runoff, factory waste, pesticides runoff, and other, you know, poison source sources. You know, there's the, the, the main river that gives water in, in New Mexico. Santa Fe. Yeah, is it gives Santa Fe all, all of its water. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, there's a lot of arroyos and washes that are I'm trying, oh, ephemeral, ephemeral water sources yeah. because they only run. Seasonal, yeah. Yeah, they're very yeah. seasonal. And so that's where most of the pollution comes into these rivers is from these ephemeral waterways. And they would become completely unregulated. How about living downstream from Los Alamos? Hmm. Right? What do you think's on that side? Right? Gee, New, any, anything, yeah. anything radioactive, radioactive waste, yeah. PCBs, all kinds of uh, poisons, yeah. mercury. And yes, because it's a federal facility, they said they would adhere to the regulations to mm. keep things from washing down. But suppose they just change their mind. They, they could legally change their mind under the regulations. Same thing in, in, in West Virginia. Okay, so that happens and then there's a, then there's, um, a, a lawsuit. And so the existing law, can, the existing regulate, regulation continues mm-hmm. while this language is in court. Where does it end? It would go the other way. At this point, as soon as they tried to implement this, it would go immediately to court. Right. And it would stop okay. it from being implemented. And so, so we could wait for this to be implemented as long as we we'll wait to see Trump's taxes because of the, uh, you know. So other than informing our listeners of what's happening, is this really a waste of their time? <laughs> because it's not going to go anywhere? Well, no, I, I, I think it's not a waste of your time for various reasons. I think it's important to understand that this is the government that a two-party system has created. We just ping-pong between executive orders by a Democratic administration, executive orders by a Republican administration. We no longer have a legislature. The legislature is, is, is partisan, and they do nothing. I mean, Trump is well, right. Trump is right in a lot of ways. They do nothing. They do nothing because of the way it's structured. They, do, well, it, you know, they it, send 400 it, bills to the Senate, they sit there. The only yeah. thing the Senate does is appoint judges. Didn't Mitch McConnell say that his job when Obama was president was pretty much to make sure he was a one-term president? Correct. Yeah, so, I mean, no, so no, this is what we're left with, with. Nothing to do with passing legislation or the common good or the but purpose we have pe- that we... But we have people on Washington. both sides just standing and yelling at the other side. So it's kind of like the question you ask about climate change, right? We can, we can yell at the other side as much as we want that climate change is an existential threat. They see abortion as an existential threat, or at least they, they claim to see that as an existential right. threat. So we're just standing there yelling at them because there's, we, no longer have, we no longer do politics with the idea of trying to actually create a compromise which would allow us to move forward because we only have two parties and the two parties have become extremely you know, groomed to really only represent one viewpoint. We're going to take a quick break, Charles, and when we come back, I want to pick up with that theme and move into a conversation about the the problem with our two-party duopoly and some ideas that you might have sure. about how to move beyond that. Uh, folks, uh, we're here on the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you. Charles Goldman. We'll be back in a minute. When it's time to entertain, think of Gateway Market to handle all the details. Gateway offers a wide variety of stress-free options like cut-to-order cheese and charcuterie, a delicious olive bar, and a wide variety of chef-prepared dips and spreads. Or let Gateway's catering team take care of the entire event 
right down to the wine and beer pairings. Gateway's expert floral designers can even customize the perfect centerpieces. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more information. Gateway Market, good food, great entertaining. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon here, Dr. Charles Goldman. Quick shout out to some of our local uh, business partners here. Uh, thanks to uh, Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating all creatures great and small for over 30 years. That's Story County Veterinary Clinic. And thanks to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes on how to turn your yard into dinner. That's Birds and Bees Urban Farm. All right, so uh, Charles and I were talking a little bit about the um, the one-party system in America. <laughs> fair, fair enough. You mean the uh, the Janus system, basically yeah. two sides of the same coin, yeah, yeah, although yeah. really not fair. Yeah, I, I think that. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's not two fair. Sides I, I think of the same there's. Coin. I think there's definitely some significant differences. Yes, but uh, it, it's a system that could use some improvements. Right, and it's interesting because you started to talk about how progressives differ from liberals. Yes. And progressivism is a, a movement which does, in fact, ask for structural changes, mm -hmm. whereas liberalism oftentimes is a way of maximizing the present system for the greatest good. So, for instance, you know, FDR was both a progressive and a liberal in the sense that his policies, which were all, many of them very empirical, I mean, it wasn't that they were coherent, I mean, in many ways, they were making it up as they went along with the New Deal. Um, but his policies, ironically, saved capitalism in the United States and, and really uh, pushed off the possibility of socialism taking hold in the United States because a depression would have been a time when it would have been right for that. I mean, there were, I remember when I was in college in the, in the uh, 70s, and there were multiple books by disappointed Eastern, Northeastern liberals as to why didn't we get socialism in the United States at the same time revering FDR. And FDR basically saved capitalism by instituting what we now call socialism. By design or accidentally? Oh, yeah, I think by accident. I mean, they were just trying to keep the country from going fascist. Because remember, that's essentially what happened in Europe. As the, uh, well, know, know, there was never a risk that America was going to go fascist. I, I don't think you could say that at really? that time that you would be sure that wouldn't be the case because that was the experience in Europe. I mean, yes, of course, national socialism in Germany uh, you know, and fascism in in Italy were extreme, you know, expressions of that. But there was you, you had fascism in Spain. Mm -hmm. You know, this, Europe was was very much, um, you know, at risk for a a rise of fascism in general because of the depression. So I don't I don't know that FDR thought I'm okay. here to save capitalism. So anyway, take yeah. us up to modern times with that, the, that, so, that thread. So so the, the the question is is. As, as I said to you, you know, 
earlier in the week, is that Trump is a symptom of and, and the end result of uh, our two-party system. The, the fact is that Trump represents a plurality of a plurality, right? Basically, um, even though people identify to a much greater degree as Democrats, but in terms of the voting public, the country's pretty much split down the middle. You're saying, when you say people identify as Democrats, you mean dem- identify more with the issues and platform that the Democratic Party Well, actually, as- increasingly, they, to well, that, see, that's, that's where I, I, I was, that's, a, that's what I was alluding to earlier, which is they identify as Democrats. Those people are like me. That's why I say ideology is malleable. So, you know, to your mind, the ideology of the Democratic Party should be about, let's save the world from the apocalypse, which is climate change. And, but you'll find that people are much more interested in being sure that their person is the president than they are climate change. So that's why the electability issue comes up. Okay, so you, you had proposed uh, an idea... Uh, about um, being able to vote for multiple candidates, right? And I'm not the only first. I'm not right, the, yeah. the only one to propose right. it. In fact, one in one state, we do have what's called ranked choice voting. Right. Sometimes also called instant runoff voting. Instant runoff voting. And right. in the Iowa caucuses, we have a version of that. Right, but it's a really inefficient it, version. And of it's that. a very limited version too. Right. You you get to vote for a candidate if that candidate does not get fifteen percent. You get to realign your commitment to someone who is viable. Right. So. Well, but the the, the point is that you can start. you can join ranked choice, choice voting to a to a change which is doable from the state level without having to amend the constitution. Uh, let, let's go to what the real problem is. It's it's the fact that the federal government representatives choose their voters now instead of the voters choosing their representatives. This is no longer a representative. So? Well, this is not a representative democracy. If, if you have a state in which 60% of the, the votes for the House of Representatives, the federal House of Representative candidates, are Democratic, but because of gerrymandering, mm-hmm. because you've moved every black person in the state into one district, like North Carolina does, basically, mm-hmm. right? Guaranteeing that, okay, the Democrats win that district. But So you have 60% of the Democrats, you know, are Democratic votes, and if there's 18 seats to divide... 12 of them or 13 of them go to Republicans because they control the redistricting. So there are a couple of things. Yeah, I really do. don't understand how that has not been successfully challenged in the courts. Oh, it has. It, well, well, because as long as you don't do it by race, this is what the Supreme Court said this year. Yeah. It's a political act over which they have no jurisdiction. The only jurisdiction federal courts now have is whether race can be proven to be the underlying modality by which they divide people up. I, mean, I don't understand the logic of that. Uh, well, I, I understand, but but the, this this is the problem. If if you simply took every state and divided it up with contiguous districts, so you can't have like Iowa does, right? Like we, Iowa, we does. do it right you, here. Yeah, you, we you, don't do everything right here. You may have we do right, right here. Right, you have four representatives. You draw a line down the middle of the state. Draw a, a latitudinal line across the state. You move both of them until you have the an equal number of voters in those districts. And those are your districts. That that's the first start. It means you cannot run on a uh, you know a one theme campaign if you actually have to appeal to people who live in rural areas and people who live in the suburbs of Des Moines. 
But if you cage everybody into a district of, of Des Moines, and then everybody else, and you have the rural areas overrepresented, and then you know what you're going to get. You can guarantee what you're going to get. So the first thing would be geographically contiguous districts. The next thing would be is take those geographically contiguous districts in states which have multiple, more districts than Iowa does and combine three or four of them together and run five to ten candidates in those districts using ranked choice voting. And that would allow... Five to ten districts, uh, not, not necessarily by party. That's correct. You just yeah. take the ones that are geographically next to each other and combine them. Right. You know, take four or five of them, and then you run, you're going to have five seats, and you can do your ranked choice voting for five, you can do it for ten people, and five people, because it's five districts, come out of that district. And you, would, you wouldn't be, you would have to have somebody who could show that they could appeal across the district, mm -hmm. the diversity, and deal with the diversity of the district, and, and essentially run in some sense as a national candidate almost rather than just the sectarian district. And, um, and it would allow third parties in. See, this is the problem. You ask the question of why are the parties against progressivism? They're against pro progressivism because it means the end of their, their dominance. <laughs> That's what they're against. Right. You know, so it, it, most of the people who, who like ranked choice voting, who like the idea of taking districts and combining them and then allowing a large number of candidates to run, they look at the European democracies and say, well, about the things we matter, that matter to us, they seem to be, always be ahead of us because they've made the compromises to make climate change mitigation a big issue, right? You know, they are ahead of us in a lot of ways. Infrastructure, they are ahead of us. So we're falling behind because we're using a political system which is, never, is no longer about compromising, you know, mm. and... and like it or not, and see, this is, this is, for instance, what I find problematic with, with both you know, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Politics in the United States has become about, we're going to give you stuff, somebody else is going to pay for it, but it's not going to happen unless you can convince enough people on the other side that there's, well, well, that there's well, something in it for them. But that's not going to happen. Well, right now, we, the mass of us, are paying for a lot of things that a handful of people are getting. Tax breaks for the rich. I, I understand that. Corporate I'm not, subsidies. I, I'm, I'm not saying I disagree with the thrust of the progressives' argument. What I'm disagreeing with is that you can simply, by taking the government with your person, change that. Because this is just what you just asked in the second segment, that very thing. Well, what does it matter if it's never going to become law? And I would, I would say, what does it matter if it's never going to become law? That's right. You can talk about Medicare for all you want, right? It ain't going to happen because you're going to need Republican votes. But, you know, it wouldn't matter if you didn't need Republican votes. Suppose there are actually the third and fourth parties who were not necessarily in agreement with you on everything the Democratic Party you know, promulgates, but they're in agreement with you on so some you're, important So you're basically uh, suggesting we move to a parliamentary system where it takes a coalition to govern. I'm, I'm saying that a coalition government would be far better in the United States. And the coalition isn't made, it's not, it's not what, like, for instance, what they're doing in Israel, where people vote for a party, and then the, whoever is, a, is the, the plurality winner gets to figure out what they can make a government. No, with ranked choice voting, you get to make your own government. The people right. get to make their own government. Mm -hmm. Because then they've made that choice already. And then you're right, there would be then some bartering. But if we at least bring back some idea of compromise, of doing politics, 
back to the American government, we'd be far better off. Because, you know, it's, otherwise it's just we all sit here. It, it's like the reaction of the Suleimani thing. Yeah. Okay? You know, everybody goes immediately to, oh, we're going to attack Iran. You know, it's, it's, it's just, it's just it, it, people are not dealing with reality anymore. They're just talking to themselves, and they're talking to the same people. Well, what do you mean? It was, I, I mean, it was very reasonable to think that we could be attacking Iran. Okay. So I mean, why not? I mean, if, if Iran had responded differently and uh, really done some damage, Trump would have, I think he would have felt inclined and he maybe even required to respond even more aggressively. And that path just leads us to war. Why, why, why is it not hard to imagine that happening? Because I, I guess the, the question is, um, what are you supposed to do about... Well, I mean, my question is why we care about what Iran does anyway. To my mind, it's not our problem. Iran has always been a phony enemy. Yes, I understand that they... What we're getting into in the Middle East is that we're fighting a surrogate war. We're fighting a proxy war for the Saudis. Our system of econ economics requires enemies. Uh, and that's not a good thing. Right. But that's, that's the reality. Right. We have to have enemies. It has to, it's a competition. Yeah. <laughs> and Iran has been a very convenient one since the 1950s. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, if since I listen to one more person on MSNBC and Fox talking about, well, we have to keep the Iranians from getting nuclear weapons. We have to keep the Iranians from getting nuclear weapons. I've heard this since the hostage crisis in the 1980s. Right? Mm -hmm. It's 19, it's 2020. It's 40 years later. Do they have a nuclear weapon? No. You don't think they have enough money to buy one for the North Koreans? <laughs> I mean, it's, this is the kind of thing that, that it's just ridiculous. It's like, I just don't find it helpful. I think if you had to appeal to beyond your base, democracy in this country would be far better. Okay, but how do, I mean, it isn't just the Democratic Party that doesn't, uh, doesn't doesn't want a progressive change like that. Right. The Republican Republican Party doesn't want it either. How do you? I mean, I no. I just I'll give you an example. Right. So when I was a lawmaker, uh, me and a um, a a, uh, a reform oriented Republican offered an amendment to allow an experimentation with instant runoff voting. Mm -hmm. uh, we all, we also offered an amendment um, regarding uh, setting up a unicameral legislature, mm -hmm. saving money and cutting down on partisanship. Shot down. There were two people who got up to speak against it, the the Republican chair of the state government yes. committee yeah. and the Democratic ranking member of the state government committee. Right. Neither party wants these reforms. Mm -hmm. How do you get to those reforms without with that kind of obstacle? I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I just don't see the pathway to accomplish it. I, I, I agree. In some, in some settings, it would be very difficult. Some settings like the one we live in now? Well, the one we are now, particularly because you have a, a ultra-minority president. He wasn't even above 12% among Republicans when he somehow managed to win the primary. But now they love him. Right. Well, they love him because it's all about because power. Because they fear him. <laughs> well, it's all about power. Right. And because they see that, that it's a party that is doomed demographically to suffer in the future. And not, and not if they can continue to rely on voter, rely on voter suppression and gerrymandering. Well, I understand that. <laughs> That's the, they've I, got to keep that going if they're going to survive. I understand that, but you cannot, you know, liberals slash progressives have relied on the courts for many decades to uh, ameliorate the, the sins of our laws. And that's going away. And that's going away. Yep. And so until there's activism out here that isn't just about 
extreme positions, but it's about the structure of how we choose our representatives, mm. I don't see anything changing. To me, it seems like the only way we're going to get to any kind of a multi-party system or a system that, uh, that, 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 uh, that, that kind of creates a dynamic where you've got uh, an inclination to compromise is for enough... Um, for, for a third party to become strong enough to challenge the two-party monopoly. Mm-hmm. And that has to happen at the, at the precinct level, at the, at the, at the, the, the house, house, house representative level, the county supervisor. It has to happen at the smallest partisan unit of government. Right. And I don't see people within those third-party movements or even disaffected Democrats or Republicans willing to put in that kind of effort. And, and, and even comprehending just what's involved in making that happen. Well, you know, the United States has one of the lowest voter participation rates in the world. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's the people who are not voting who don't see a point in voting because they really don't see themselves as given a, a choice. That's, that they, is, they have a point, right? They, I think they do have a point. <laughs> I mean, I, and again, there's a huge distinction between the policies of a Republican Congress or Republican President Trump and President Obama. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that President Obama's policies were even remotely progressive or in line with right. what most people believe in, but there's a huge gulf there. Well, they're but, not but the they're, same. You know, there's a, I think, again, this, this is a generational issue. At some point, the boomers need to get out of the way. I mean, as much as I, I hate the OK Boomer thing. So can we turn this talk show over to a couple of younger people? Well, now? at some point we should. But, you know, for instance, there's a, for, there's, a, there's a lot of kids who go to Christian schools who have fairly fundamental Christian beliefs, but they believe in climate change and they see climate change as an existential threat. They don't read the Bible literally to believe that God has said he's not going to flood the world again. You know, so that's a different kind of vote than either of these parties. He's only going to flood parts of the world, like coastal regions and (laughs) and the Missouri River Valley. (laughs) All I'm saying is I do think that you are right. Unfortunately, this kind of progression, progressive, movement is not going to come from people our age. It's going to come from people who have more stake. People who are future. older than us, like Bernie Sanders. Right, and that, that's <laughs> a perfect example of what the problem is in the United right. States. So, yeah, I mean, and this, you know, what I see is that the movement that Bernie Sanders has generated is going to lead to younger candidates who are following a similar, similar course of action but have more longevity to continue to push that. We'll see if that happens. Hmm. All right. Hey, thanks for joining us, folks. Again, Ed Fallon with Dr. Charles Goldman here on the Fallon Forum. Thanks for tuning in. Check out our podcast. Uh, Listen to the show rebroadcast on various stations around the country. Go to the Fallon Forum website to get more detail on that. And we'll see you next week. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Across the Des Moines Metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, 
Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location and stylish ambiance, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, Scott Smith, Tina Haas Finley, and Nick Leo. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. If you haven't been to Noche, you haven't experienced the fullness of Des Moines' cultural revival. If you have, we're sure you'll be back. Noche, located on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines.